0: This is Carrie Sassine, and welcome back to the IQT podcast. As promised, we're here again this week with BNext, who's here to talk about how technology can be used to diagnose and treat coronavirus. Hi, I'm Kevin O'Connell. I'm a VP on the technical staff at InQtel and our life sciences team, BNext. We're here today to talk about the COVID 19 outbreak and uh, the ways that technology is being employed to combat it. I'm here and I'm joined today with my colleagues, uh, Dan Hanfling and Dylan George.
1: Hi, I'm Dan uh, on the Incutel staff as a VP uh, and part of the BNEX team, and I'm also a practicing emergency physician.
2: Hi, everybody. My name is Dylan George. I'm a VP of BNEX. Last week, we talked about uh, the epidemiology and diagnostics associated with COVID-19. Uh, and this week, we were looking to talk a little bit more about the need for public health measures. And then Dan um, is going to really help us understand the crisis standards of care, which he's a leading expert on. Um, there's a couple points that right off the top that we wanted to highlight with everybody. What we had discussed last week was COVID-19 is uh, is a serious, dynamic and disruptive pandemic. I think that we've all come to that conclusion over the last while um, and beating. But beating this virus is possible Um We've seen examples in other countries that show the way on how we can beat the virus. Uh, and then last, um, there's been, uh, discussions about how, when and how to relax the physical distancing requirements that we're currently under. And we need to mass, but we need to massively expand efforts to respond to this outbreak, uh, through population wide physical distancing, uh, targeted containment, and then ultimately, uh, with vaccines.
0: Yeah. The, uh the, the fact that we uh, we would relax those doesn't mean the virus goes away.
2: Exactly. And, in, in fact, there's uh, um, good evidence from the 1918 flu, pandemic flu, and um, uh, H1N1, when measures were relaxed, spread went up again. So um, we need to do it, and we need to follow the right science and data and know when to release those um, social distancing measures.
0: So as of today – March the 26th, the U.S. has reported over a 1,000 deaths from COVID-19, um, and that number seems like it's going to continue to increase.
2: Yeah, we're on a, a pretty intense trajectory right now, and, you know, the wave of cases in particular is beginning to crash on New York City, which is um, particularly concerning, um, and there's justifiable fears that the healthcare system there is going to be overwhelmed, and um, uh, you know, to, to save human lives uh, from COVID-19, uh, we need to keep applying these physical distancing measures um, and staying at home advisories. We need to adhere to those going forward. Um, because of the seriousness of this pandemic, these actions, you know, they're really necessary and they're warranted. So please follow the guidance. Keep six feet away from people. Wash your hands. Stay at home. Um, and uh, try to get as much good sleep as you possibly can right now, too.
0: <laughs> yep. It's not to say that these aren't difficult measures. Most people uh, listening, uh, certainly we at home, um, you know, are suffering from the, the disruptions due to schools being closed, businesses are shut down, or those of us who are fortunate enough uh, to be able to work from home are having to do so. Um, entire industries, of course, uh, where you have to show up in public, like flying on airlines, uh they're taking real hits, and so are their employees and this uh, economic impact is being reflected in the performance of the stock market and which is a leading indicator of, uh, at least right now i believe of uh, of further economic stress that we 're going that we're going to feel going forward um, but that stress is only going to get worse if the case rates go even higher
1: yeah this is this is Dan. Um and I am also on the uh, technical staff at Incatel uh, and working on the B-NEXT team. I'm actually also a practicing emergency physician. So I've got a foot in, in both worlds, both looking at it from the outside uh, as we're discussing it from a policy and a societal perspective, and then literally from the inside uh, at the uh, in the trenches and at the bedside taking care of patients. And I, I, I want to go back to the analogy that uh, Dylan used uh, a few moments ago about the crashing wave in New York City, for example, because in your community, if it appears that it's calm and quiet and you haven't heard of too many folks who are being sick, you know this might be akin to the tsunami with the wave pulling out and the tide going out and uh, and being the you know literally the calm before the crashing wave returns to shore. And I think the notion of uh, taking every step possible to reduce transmission, uh, because this is a respiratory illness that spreads easily amongst and between people, is really our best bet to preserving the healthcare care system, but uh, more, equally importantly, as importantly, preserving uh, all the societal functions, and it gets us closer to being able to turn things back on once we know that wave of illness has crested and our communities are beginning to... To re- repair and heal, and we are just on the front end of that wave, not anywhere close to being yeah. ready to re- reduce the social distancing measures.
2: Yeah, absolutely, Dan. And he's like, you know, this is a particularly painful and anxious time for all of us, and it's, uh, um, and I think it's justifiable to feel that way as well. I mean, and and also, it's, I mean, given the economic impact of these these measures right now, it's, it's absolutely reasonable to ask how long this will last. And when we, as individuals or communities, can begin relaxing these kinds of these, these kinds of measures, I mean, the the simple answer to this particular question, though, from from my perspective, is we don't know the specifics for a specific location and when to do that. What we do know is that science and data should really guide these decisions so that we can help save lives and maintain uh, functioning healthcare systems. Um, you know, examples from. South Korea, China, Singapore, Taiwan, they've all given us really good an understanding of how they've individually beaten the virus. And we need to actually take advantage of those examples as we go forward. Um, in, you know, in all of these examples, there was community-wide physical distancing. So staying at home, uh, staying away from individuals six feet or more. Um, and then there was also a massive surge of support to the hospitals. You know, China even built several hospitals in 10 days. You know, we can't even permit hospitals in the United States to build anything in that short amount of time. But that was impressive. But then testing, testing, testing. We need testing. um, uh, And and we talked a a lot about that last week. And I'm confident we're going to talk some more about it going forward because it's so critical.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, Dan, you've been doing a ton of work uh, in the medical community About, uh, discussing and establishing, uh, what the crisis standards of care are going to be going forward here, uh, in in the teeth of the outbreak. Can you talk a little bit about what the, what crisis standards of care are and, uh, and how that discussion is going?
1: Yeah, sure, Kevin. Uh, so, so crisis standards of care, this is, uh, this is really a framework that describes the ability for the healthcare community to respond to an overwhelming catastrophic disaster event. And it is work that began actually a decade ago during the one n one pandemic, which in retrospect was no more than a glancing blow. We were convened by the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, I was given the honor of uh, co-chairing the first of three committees that developed three reports uh, over the subsequent few years, both defining and detailing uh, what, uh, a response to an overwhelming catastrophic catastrophic event would look like as uh, the um, surge in demand for healthcare care services would far ac- uh, far exceed the ability to to deliver such required care. And so we uh, developed a definition to uh, explain what uh, crisis standards of care were, which is essentially, a substantial change in the ability to deliver health care services made uh, necessary because of the um, extent of a catastrophic event and you know as an ER doc i guess the way to make this more simply understood is it's not just a busy saturday night in the ER it is really due to a pervasive sustained emergency that changes the ability to deliver care from conventional um... standards of care and so uh, over time we developed a framework that describes the dynamic uh, range uh, across which healthcare services change from conventional care to crisis care, uh, from conventional standards of care to crisis standards of care. And uh, and indeed, as this uh, COVID-19 outbreak is beginning to roll through communities across the United States, we're seeing uh, up close and personal how these uh, changes are beginning to be implemented. Uh, And I'll give you uh, two cases in point. One is with regards to the access to personal protective equipment, the uh, gowns and gloves and masks and other protective equipment that the frontline healthcare providers uh, need to have in order to protect themselves from delivering care. And anyone who's been following any of the news understands that there's a tremendous shortage. Uh, In fact, the projected requirements uh, work that was done uh, by the federal government uh, within, the, within the office of the assistant secretary for preparedness and Re- response and the cdc and niosh estimated that 3.5 billion with a b uh, mask might be required in response to a uh, respiratory transmissible uh, you know uh, um, epidemic outbreak and that's exactly what we're facing now and we have nowhere close to those numbers of uh, respiratory protective devices available the other area that receives a lot of attention has to do with ventilators and again those who are following the news closely know that there's now significant effort underway to identify what technological solutions might be able to be brought to bear to rapidly scale up in the uh, development uh, delivery uh, production and delivery of uh, mechanical ventilators so um, so the crisis standards of care framework in a nutshell gives us a way to think about these very difficult decisions and uh, I can get into more details uh, you know at a later date mm-hmm.
0: thanks um, I uh, I wanted to give you some additional free press as well uh, you helped organize um, so in, in medicine there's a uh, a phenomenon called Grand Rounds uh, in which physicians uh, help educate each other on uh, cases and care uh, as they learn and improve what they do. Um, and you helped set up a uh, a large kind of a nationwide or international Grand Rounds that's going to help that's going to happen uh, periodically. You want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So, sh- sure. Thanks. Uh you know, thanks for recognizing that work. It it um, you know it, it is. It's evidently clear that you know at the end of the day, doctors like to listen to doctors, and nurses like to listen to nurses, and uh, medics listen to medics. You know, we 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 talk amongst ourselves within our peer groups, and and that exchange of information is critically important to advancing the science and understanding. Uh, what it is that we know, and also recognizing what it is that we don't yet know about uh, any particular disease state, particularly an emerging infection like the COVID-19 virus. So, um, so the idea actually uh, came from work that was done during the Ebola outbreak uh, in West Africa, and then um, to a lesser extent, an idea that was floated during the Zika uh, crisis uh, uh, that followed. And that was to say, how could we bring peer-to-peer um, consultations in real time to a large audience uh, who could learn from listening to their colleagues about uh, the cases and the management of cases? And in the work that we did at Inkitel, uh, going back actually to early December, before we even knew there was a, such a thing as this new novel coronavirus uh, you know emerging from uh, central China, We focus on the the important role of digital health technologies to assist in the response to an epidemic. And amongst those digital health technologies, of course, we were looking at symptom checkers and and, um, those tools that could be driven by AI and machine learning. We we looked a lot about uh, uh, telehealth and telemedicine capabilities, but included as a subtext uh, to the telemedicine uh, feature was a a, – a capability that I refer to as tele where you could use the same sort of connectivity to bring clinical groups together and in real time talk about clinical cases. And one of the largest networks in the country and in the world is run out of the University of New Mexico, founded it initially to help manage the complexity related to liver disease, and now um, is the uh, platform for these COVID-19 clinical case conferences that we initiated this past week and will be uh, continuing to uh, support over the the coming coming weeks and months.
0: I'm really glad that you mentioned digital health um, because I think that ties beautifully back into the points that Dylan was making earlier about uh, the need for increased social distancing. And telehealth not only relieves the in-person pressure on uh, the emergency departments, people walking in, but it provides an additional tool that allows people to consult their physicians and other healthcare providers, uh, while maintaining social distance outside the, uh, without the need to leave their home or, uh, uh, or to, to see people face to face, at least for the initial consult. Um, and, uh, in a, in a very large and, and scattered widespread way, uh, the Grand Rounds, uh, which happened virtually, isn't that correct? That happened over the internet. Allowed a large number of people to participate without without needing to be uh, you know in one large auditorium.
1: That's right. That's right. So so absol- you know so these digital capabilities uh, are they're pretty simple and they're pretty straightforward and yet they can make a uh, tremendous uh, difference with regards to both maintaining social distancing, uh, providing access to care. And also uh, on the back end, uh, potentially allowing for aggregated data that can be used to help us determine where the hotspots are. Mm-hmm. And so, circling full circle back to uh, Dylan's comments about, you know, when when do we when do we recognize that communities will be ready to take their foot off the gas with regards to social distancing? Uh, I'm hopeful that the uh, the wide uh, employee – of these digital health technologies may add data points that could be useful uh, so that if we do see hotspots, think about it, the, the, here's another analogy, you know, a, a brush fire or a wildfire um, with, with multiple brush fires. When those hotspots, um, you know, uh, come to our recognition, we can send resources and focus attention on squashing them, on, on, on quenching them, and uh, hopefully, in due time, you know, be able to uh, limit the likely re-emergence uh, uh, and retransmission within communities. So, so the digital health tools, I, I think, uh, hold tremendous pro- promise, uh, and uh, we should continue to, to push ahead uh, to make sure that they're implemented uh, to the extent that, that we can for the management of this crisis and certainly for future crises that may, may come.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, all our eyes are turned back towards China and South Korea uh, and, uh, um, and how the both of those nations um, are going to move forward. Um, you know, with, with, now that there's some indication that perhaps the spread of the outbreak in those nations has slowed uh, due to their intervention efforts, what they do next is going to be very telling for the rest of us.
1: Absolutely, and and I think that uh, you know therein lies the real opportunity. Uh, looking forward, uh, there have been so many application of of new technologies, uh, not just on the health side, but on the uh, ability to to identify where people are, and uh, of course, you know, recognizing that there are tremendous privacy uh, issues at play, and you know. Mm-hmm the societal tolerances in some of the Asian communities are very different than, than what we would tolerate here in the United States. But nonetheless, the fact that technologies can help us, uh, you know, circumnavigate some of the challenges uh, of the of event like a pandemic, uh, like an epidemic outbreak, I think should give us hope to figuring out how how we need to apply them. And as we are uh, marching our way through this crisis, making sure that we take note of where we think the best opportunities are to employ those technologies in the future.
2: Yeah, and as you know, as Dan was talking about as well, it's like trying to find those technologies that would allow us to measure and um, increase the adherence of community-wide um, social distancing capabilities, that is going to be really critical. And then also, I mean, I think the thing that uh, Dan was alluding to is that it might be challenging for us to think about how to apply technologies to doing what is referred to as contact tracing. So, I mean, what contact tracing is, is if the standard public health measures for breaking chains of transmission are identifying individuals that are infected, isolating them so that they don't continue to infect other people, quarantining families and people that they've been in contact with so that they don't infect other people, and then rinse and repeat. You keep going down those chains of uh, so that you can uh, find those people and, and isolate them. It all hinges, again, on being able to identify the infectious person. So diagnostics, again, is a critical component. But the, the challenge here with doing this contact tracing is that uh, typically, or in many places, it's a manual process. Think a person with a clipboard and a can-do attitude going out and finding all the people, that have been come in contact with an infected index case. China and South Korea have deployed technologies at scale for that can-do attitude person with a clipboard to do it across thousands of people very quickly. Now, it does come up against some uh, very uh, real and concerning privacy issues that we need to work through, um, and we need to find the appropriate way to apply these technologies in this particular situation in a democratic society. But um, definitely I think that we're smart enough and um, the risk is great enough that we need to fi- We can figure those things out. I believe I'm hopeful uh, that we can.
0: I agree. Um, yeah, there's a, uh, there's a phrase, uh, a name for what you just, uh, uh, what you just described that I've heard in the past. Uh, people have called it shoe leather epidemiology and, uh, it sounds very seventeenth century I hope that uh, I hope that you're right and that we find a uh, version of this uh, that we can deploy effectively here in the United States
1: well and and you know and bringing this back to the work uh, that I've been so heavily invested in over the last decade which is this focus on on catastrophic um, health response and the notion that a systems framework needs to be put in place one of the key elements of that system is actually uh, the ability to gain the public's trust by including them in the discussion. And we we refer to that as community engagement, which uh, any public health practitioner understands as being fundamental to the work that they do. And I think that going forward, we probably need to think about the role that community engagement can play in identifying how we use new technologies, recognizing that it does potentially infringe on some of the public's own perceptions of privacy and uh, so on and so forth, uh, but we, you know, we we have the opportunity. Uh, I hope to have those conversations and to engage the public in those discussions, and at least uh, here in the United States, employ the tools of deliberative democracy so that people actually have a stake in what things look like in the future. It's basically, a little bit of having your cake and eating it too. Mm-hmm.
2: This is uh, one of the reasons why I really like um, being in the group I am. It's like having such wonderful colleagues like uh, Kevin and Dan um, and that you get to learn um, from some of the the, the nation's experts in these fields. And so it's just an actual privilege and and, an honor to be uh, working on this team. And so it's it's been just a joy to chat with you guys today. We we feel the same.
0: Um, I think that we're running up on the the edge of our time. Uh, Dylan and I uh, recorded a a very long podcast last week, and we 're going to try and uh, go easier on the uh, on our listening public uh, going forward here. Thank you all for your time and participation. thanks to uh, our producers, Carrie and Kristen and uh, thank you, uh, Dan, for a great explanation of uh, of the work that you're doing. There is no end of to the topics that we can uh, discuss related to uh, to the current outbreak. We have an agenda that uh, right now has us uh, carrying through uh, on a at least a weekly cadence into May. And uh, so you'll be hearing from us on a regular basis on a variety of topics around the outbreak uh, and the ability of technology uh, and us as a society to combat it. Thank you all. Thank you again for listening in to the IQT podcast. And thank you to Kevin, Dylan, and Dan for sharing their insights today. Look forward to more coming next week. Stay safe.